0: the one-to-one career conversation podcast. I'm so grateful you took the time to download and listen to this new episode. This week, we're meeting with Marlo Fogelman. Marlo is the founder and CEO of Marlo Marketing, a full-service integrated agency dedicated with a single purpose, delivering unsurpassed ROI to clients in the world of food, beverage, and hospitality. Marlowe started out 16 years ago with a modest roster of clients, including Starbucks, Nantucket Wine Festival and a handful of small restaurants, and she's been able to grow Marlowe Marketing into a national agency recognised for combining style and substance to launch and promote and build notable brands in the restaurant, hotel, travel, destination, leisure and consumer product space. Marlowe has had the pleasure of studying abroad, working in different organisations and learning from other people's mistakes to make sure that she continues to perform strongly I was able to meet with Marlo for around 45 minutes and we learned how her career got started, everything from the world of coffee to studying abroad, learning from other people's mistakes and engaging other team members. Here is my conversation with Marlo Fogelman. Hey Marlo, I'm so grateful that we can speak today. And firstly, how are you?
1: I'm great, I'm great. Thank you so much Chris for having me.
0: Okay, so let's talk about your career in building your own integrated marketing agency. How did it all begin?
1: It all began with coffee, actually. My path had always been law. Graduated from law school. Didn't know what I wanted to do. And this is the abridged version. A friend saw an ad for a PR firm in a legal magazine. I had no idea what PR was. Um, Had never heard of it as a profession. But I was like, all right, I'll apply. I didn't know what else to do. And I got the job. And I was at this company. Starbucks had actually entered the New England market in 1995 by buying... A six unit coffee shop called Coffee Connection that people were obsessed with. There wasn't a lot of, you know, espresso based beverage options in this market at that time, heavily because Dunkin' Donuts is based here and uh, it was sort of known as Dunkin' territory. And so they came into the market, they bought Coffee Connection. They didn't do a great job of winning over, if you will, the Coffee Connection fans. And so they just had a lot of a lot of struggles getting getting the company going here and so they went through five pr firms over 5 years every year hiring and firing and they were at the agency that I got that first job at they've been there about 6 months and they weren't happy and so they put me on the business and basically in about 3 months I turned it around i really had no idea what i was doing but you know pr is not uh, brain surgery, right? It's not rocket science. It's a lot of common sense. It's a lot of creativity. It's a lot of good communication skills. It's a lot of relationship development. All skills that I that I have. And so after I, you know, was able to turn it around, and they were just so happy, and and they found the solution. Ended up having the real pleasure of just getting to really cut my teeth um, on such a great brand in relatively early days. This was probably. 19, end 99, 2000. And so back then you could just be PR or you could just be advertising. There wasn't really a lot of integration. Um, it wasn't required and advertising still always took, you know, the PR was always the ugly stepchild to the ad advertising um, agency. And, but this client worked it a little bit differently. We had an, an ad agency out of New York who represented New England. I represented New England for all the PR and the client was based out of Toronto and she was amazing. And she went on to become the director of international marketing out of Seattle. So it was just a really great sort of time and place scenario where I was able to cut my teeth in a really integrated way at a time when you didn't have to be integrated and and just really think about marketing in a more holistic perspective. So Four and a half years later, I started the agency, and Starbucks came with me and was my first client. So that's kind of how it all began, coffee.
0: And coffee is, is my favorite drink, so you, you wanna, <laughs> <laughs> wanna, want a lot of hearts there. So also you spent your junior career in college, so stepping back a little bit in an amazing city and one that's truly unique in Paris. Can you share about how that experience helped f- shape your future career?
1: You know, I think it's fair to say that Paris helped to shape the lifestyle that would enable me to succeed in my future career. And so what I mean by that, you know, living abroad gave me an opportunity at a relatively young age to integrate the kind of work-life balance that any entrepreneur, you know, is going to need to be successful. You know, for example, you know, I would have class in the morning and then, you know, one of my favorite places in Paris was to go spend some time hanging out at the Pompidou Center and I would study at the library, do work, and then I might take a break and go see a movie mid-afternoon or go to the you know record floor and listen to records for a bit, you know, and then I might do some more work and then I might meet friends for dinner. You know, so having a flexible schedule, you know, it's it's a luxury and It's something that I'm so grateful for to have in my life. But it can also sometimes appear that you're sort of working more, right, when you're getting stuff done at 10 p.m. at night. But it's remembering that you had, you know, a five-hour break with friends for a long lunch and, you know, whatever at one o'clock. That's the reason for the late night. So I think a lot of people who have never really experienced this way of working before now have during the pandemic you know, and it's definitely not for everybody. But I think really that was the experience that allowed me to understand how to make entrepreneurship work.
0: So one thing I've noticed a lot, so I moved here to the US maybe three years ago. And one thing I've noticed since moving is that it's a lot more common here for people to spend a year internationally during college than it is in comparison to the UK. It's very seldom done there. Would you encourage other people to experience this type of activity to help shape their future career?
1: It's interesting that that your question, I think, because traditionally I think of the gap year, right? You know, as much more European than American. Not that study abroad is the same as gap year, but it's, you know, certainly a similar mindset. You know, but your question, absolutely. I mean, during high school and college, I spent a significant amount of time abroad from homestays with families, through, you know structured programs in France to when I was in law school I did a um, summer program in Belgium around a master's degree that I was doing to sort of having that exposure to new cultures new ideas experiences really having to be pushed beyond your comfort zone but having to figure things out for yourself you know again at a relatively young age you know late teens early 20s was invaluable in in again setting me up for, being able to do the kind of work and have the kind of lifestyle that I have now.
0: Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree. I think since moving here, my outlook on work has completely changed. The way that I interact with, with people has completely changed. And, and that's a good thing. And I think actually, if I look at my, even my, I have three young daughters and even the way that they interact with other people has completely changed too, all for the better because they're around cultures, which is different and they're going into a different schooling system. So I would absolutely encourage anyone to go and experience that because it does it changes you uh, for the better and, so and good
1: it proves, it proves to you that you can do it right you can like i mean silly things like going to the post office in France is much harder than going to the post office in the US or Italy or you know wherever and so there are little things there are little life things that you just don't i think it makes you appreciate both what you have in your home country as well as, you know, give you a strong understanding of of, you know, how to that that you're that you can do things, that you can figure things out. You know, and I think all of those things, you know, obviously are are so key in setting yourself up for a successful career.
0: Yeah, there was actually a previous um, episode that we we did with a lady who she moved from London to to Dubai and, and she she referenced it as it gave her determination to succeed and it was exactly what you were just saying she would she would get frustrated that her her electricity wouldn't be turned on or she didn't have any friends or she didn't know anyone and he gave her that kind of drive even now that she has when working in london she references that and she builds on it because she's built up this kind of determination inside her so very powerful absolutely so and then after paris you enrolled in law school in in boston how how was that experience
1: Oh, law school! I loved law school, which is funny because I don't think, uh, like I'm ninety-nine point nine percent sure, I would have absolutely been miserable if I was practicing law. You know, honestly, when I went to when I went to law school, it wasn't because I was so set on being a lawyer. It was at that point. It was kind of because I didn't know what else to do. I had always had visions my whole you know career, my whole education, educational career. Of being a lawyer or a politician, you know. When I was in college, I did an internship for a state representative that quickly swayed me from from that. And anybody who knows me now thinks it's so funny that I ever thought about being a politician because um, one of the things that is widely known about me is I'm very straightforward and I, I, I I'm not good at I'm at sort of you know giving wishy-washy answers to you know placate both sides. And so when I got back from Paris, I just didn't know what to do. So I studied to take the LSAT and I got a job at a law firm, which I didn't love, but my LSAT scores were really good. And I'd always wanted to live in Boston. So I pretty much only applied to schools here. And when I got into my first choice of Boston University, I figured there were worse things I could do for three years. So I also did a dual program, but you had some programs in addition to just straight the straight JD program. So I got a master's in international relations at the same time which definitely, you know, fit my desire to travel and allowed me to continue exploring my interest in a world beyond the U.S. So, you know, it was a great experience. I wouldn't, I wouldn't you know, change it for the world. It, has it helped me now? People think, oh, great, you're a lawyer. You can do your own contracts. Trust me, I, I hire a lawyer when I have to, you know, do an important contract. You know, I think law school gives you, it, it teaches you how to think. It doesn't actually teach you the law necessarily. You learn that when you study for the bar exam. And so I think it's a great education for really many things. Would I encourage somebody who knew they didn't want to be a lawyer to go to law school? Probably not. But it was, you know, it was sort of a place in time and and I don't regret it. I'm grateful for every every moment of it.
0: And then in your own words, at the age of 27, you were at a stage of what you called pre-life crisis what was going on at that point in your career?
1: Well, it's true. A pre-life crisis in 27. Yeah, I graduated. I had taken and passed two bar exams. I took New York and Massachusetts because I didn't really know where I wanted to, to ultimately live. But there was just less in law that I felt I really wanted to do than what I did want to do. So I, you know, I was interested in film editing. So I had done some internships in that and I got a job on the set of a having Costner movie being filled up in Maine that paid nothing and, you know, I needed a car, which I didn't have. And then I got offered a job in New York at an uh, international talent agency as the assistant to the one agent who handled legal matters for all of the agency's clients, no money. And, you know, I had all this, you know, debt from school. So nothing really fit. I just didn't know what to do or, you know, where to go. So I started a friend of mine, girlfriend of mine was dating this guy who had started a high tech um, company and his assistant was going on maternity leave, and so he needed somebody to, you know, come in for three months. So I did that. He was a year older than me. I mean, it wasn't a traditional, like, okay, very corporate job, and you know, it was great. He, you know, he sold the company to EMC during that time, and so I got to do a lot again with relationship development, working with his investors. I did a lot of culture building things for the team. You know, he made a lot of money. I did this this as in his new home on Nantucket and Beacon Hill. So it was fun, right? And then after about a year, I had to make the choice if I was going to stay with a new company or not, which I didn't, that's not where I wanted to be. So then I went over to one of the big insurance agencies, had this huge lawsuit that they sort of put together this, I don't know, 500 person ADR department to deal with. And there was this one group that they wanted to be all lawyers. It was basically, you know, a bunch of lawyers pushing papers for 25 bucks. But so we had this group of all lawyers and we sort of, we called ourselves the Isle of the Misfit Lawyers because a lot of people, they were looking for jobs in law, they couldn't find jobs. Or they were like me and they didn't really want to find a job in law, but they didn't know what else they wanted to do. And a friend of mine there is the one who saw the ad for the PR firm because I certainly wasn't reading legal publications at the time and told me I should apply. And I had really no idea that, how how much that would completely transform my life.
0: While working as an assistant to the president in the tech startup, you took it upon yourself to enhance the company culture. How did you do that?
1: Well, I always say I have one true talent, which is throwing parties. You know, I joke kind of, I have a couple more talents than that, but you know, whether it's a dinner party for two or a party, or the NHL for a thousand people, complete with a skating rink in the ballroom of a luxury hotel. These things just come really naturally to me. So creating events in that office for the for the parents, holiday gingerbread house decorating parties, little gifts and treats for the staff. You know, remember this was like the late 90s. It was pre you know expectation that there should be snacks in the you know fields and booze and beer on tap and you know, work from home. It was, a, it was a very different time in sort of the corporate corporate cycle. So they were little things, but they, they definitely went a long way. And so, you know, creativity has always been a big part of who I am. And I was always drawn to that element of hospitality and making people feel welcome, whether it be in an office or event setting. And so, you know, that was sort of just one of the things that, again, I, I was never charged with it. Like when I started, the CEO was not like, OK, I want you to throw parties or I want you to um, do things that make the staff feel, you know, welcome or, or feel appreciated. I just kind of took it upon myself to to do that. And and it, 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 you saw the benefit from it, you know, in multiple ways.
0: So that's actually one thing that I truly love about that story is that you took it upon yourself. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about how you took it upon yourself to do it. And secondly, the importance of taking initiative and just doing it.
1: Yeah, you know, I think most of my life, I've kind of taken it upon myself. I guess it's just the way, the way that I built. You know, I mean, the reason that that friend at that insurance company I was working at gave me the ad, you know, read the ad in the in the legal magazine and like ripped it out and the intention of giving it to me was because the things that I naturally gravitate to took upon myself were things like showing appreciation with the creative gift you know creating news and events building relationships so you know had I not exhibited those traits in my own life you know for others to see it's just sort of really being authentic to who I was I really I have no idea where I would be today You know and as far as the importance of taking it upon yourself in my humble opinion it's key you know my company was built upon the belief and my staff who take the initiative on their own are much more likely to be with me for the long term than those who sort of sit back and wait to be handed their next task right i mean it doesn't matter what level you are you can be the the assistant the you know the the receptionist and if you take it upon yourself to where the glasses go in the kitchen to make it more stream like this is a silly example but right it's not like you need to be at a certain level to take it upon yourself so there's just the people who have that mindset as opposed to the people who sit back and say okay well I I finished this and nobody gave me anything or I don't know what to do next are always the ones who you know are more successful at my company so it was funny a couple of years ago we went through uh, sort of company values mission realignment because for years our sort of you know our internal line was you know we, we get shit done right It was about getting things done and so we went through this this realignment and came up with as a team with the company's now primary core value of don't stop until you're proud and that didn't come from me you know that came from the collective group and that probably made me more proud than anything else i've created in my professional career because it was a group of people that I'd assembled who together working really, really collectively, I guess, came up with something that really stood for all of us in the room. And so that was that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, and I was actually reading one of your previous newsletters, and in your team's own words, you actually live and die by that core value of don't stop until you're proud. Can you Can you outline a little bit more, maybe about what that value is, and then also maybe an example of it in practice?
1: You know, like I said, I I always say that the folks who thrive with us are the ones who work hard, not for their clients or for me, but for themselves. The team members who are most successful and fulfilled in their roles are those who find reward in the job well done. Not in, you know, the trappings of climbing some corporate ladder that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. You know, I'm always wary of the employees who come in and say right off the bat that they want a title change within X days or You know whatever they sort of have these preconceived goal lines that they're sort of basing their career on are the ones who never have to ask for promotions or raises they get those proactively because their hard work and drive is noticed immediately and rewarded accordingly i mean i've given raises twenty thousand dollar raises to people i've given bonuses spot bonuses for no reason other than what they've done right and so it's not something and you're never going to train somebody. To do that, right? If it's not inherent into who they are, you know, it's 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 something that you have to either have within you or or, or not. And I think that there's to some extent an ability to mentor, to, to you know, think about that. And I've had some you know great folks who work for me who've gone off on their own and certainly have that that desire, or people who have been with me for you know sixteen years, ten years, eight years. Um, but it's it's something. You either have it or you don't, you know, and, and how it sort of plays into what we do, you know, it, it comes into play with everything we do. I just sent an email this morning about a photo for a client's website that, you know, it could have been very easily just like, okay, here's the photo, switch it up. And I was like, yeah, you know, yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's a B minus photo, but like, why would we want a B-minus photo? Let's get it to an A plus photo. It's the same thing. Just making sure you know that the the depth is proper and the picture is representing what you want to represent for the client. So it comes into little things like that, you know, and it comes into bigger things. You know, I sat in a meeting last week, I think, two weeks ago, with a company that was shocked at how much time we spend on creating customized marketing plans for our clients, and they were like, "Wouldn't it be so much faster and easier to simply create a template, you know, set it and forget it model?" Because They're more of a digital firm and that's sort of what they do. And I was like, yeah, I mean, sure, it'd be easier, of course. But, you know, we don't have any interest in doing that kind of superficial level cookie cutter work. You know, we take pride in creating plans for our clients that will not just help them gain, you know, a ton of followers, for example, on Instagram, that doesn't actually do anything to drive sales or enhance the brand. You know, we want to build long lasting legacy brands that you know draws fans and customers for the long haul so cutting corners and half asking it just isn't our thing we need to feel good about the work that we do and for us giving 110 percent is how we how we do that
0: and then one of the key learning experiences for your for you was listed down as when you were at john hancock and you were unhappy that staffers and associates if the if the associates were unhappy the management would throw them a pizza party or an ice cream social How did you learn from that experience and then how does it now shape the way that you manage your team and, frankly, company today?
1: Yeah, you really did your homework. I'm very, very impressed. I don't even know where you found some of this stuff. You went deep in the archives. You know, there is a tone deafness to corporate America sometimes that can be painful to watch. You know, that was one example. You know, I think we do our best. And do we fail sometimes? Absolutely. Probably every day. But, you know, we do our best to have our entire team involved in decision making, because I think if you're part of a process, it's going to make sense, you know, just from a common sense perspective, there's going to be more buy-in. You know, those events that I did when I was at the high-tech company, you know, felt authentic and relevant to the staff. Most of them had families. So we created ways to engage their work life and their home life and to sort of share them. And a lot of families became, you know, friends. As a result of that, outside of work, and that back at a time, that was a time when it wasn't always a case, right? You know, it was sort of you go to work and then you go home, and, and those two lives really didn't didn't integrate a lot, you know. So I think what I've learned firsthand through all of those experiences, unfortunately, I'm a, I'm a pretty fast study, so I can sort of see something and you know get what makes sense and, and get what doesn't, you know. Is that all the ice cream in the world won't make a difference if people don't feel purpose in their work or valued by their team, you know? It's always nice to have happy hours and offsites, you know, back when those were a thing and you weren't on Zoom, you know, trying to have cocktails, you know, on the screen. You know, but they're the cherry on the top on top. They're not foundation for what makes and keeps people engaged and happy. Ultimately, I believe that teams are happiest and most productive when they feel true ownership over their work and their surroundings. You know, every manager at my company is empowered to run their team as they see fit. You know, I learned a long time ago that it's sort of my way or the highway doesn't work if you want to build a culture of shared ownership and pride over the company's output and reputation. You know, and also I, you know, my goal, my personal thing that I strive for, like, I always want to be the stupidest person in the room. You know, I love, I remember when we started growing and and getting into other categories and a team, one of my CPG teams had put together a recap for a client and I wasn't really involved in in the work. I really, I live more on the hospitality side of, of our work. And I'm I'm like, we did that. I'm like, what? That's amazing. You know, and so I want people who, who want to um, create and want to own and want to, you know, not stop until they're proud because it just, that's what excites and inspires me, you know? So, and I think it's also critical that you're honest and transparent. You know, we got a lot of high marks from, you know, our team, through this covid and and I don't want to say through it because we're certainly far from far from over but you know we closed the office i closed the office early march like maybe the 2nd early second week of march before the nba before broadway and it just was like you know we're not really sure what this is and before we closed it it was like you know we're watching it we're we're not sure what's going on and then something just hit one day and i'm like you know what i think i think we just have to to you know bite this bullet and, and see. And we've been incredibly transparent and incredibly honest with the team, probably more so than most companies would be about uh, finances, about how we've been hit. I mean, when you're a business, you know, as as you know, you know, we're a good two-thirds of our business is hospitality. We've certainly been pretty affected by this. You know, I had to do layoffs and furloughs for the first time in 16 years. I've never done that before no matter what was going on in the economy or the world. And so it was even more of a reason to just be completely open and transparent and, and, and let your team know that they could come to you and ask. Cause you know, in addition to whatever else is going on, you know, in with your with your job and in the world to not have that ability to control, right? So many people have just, you sort of feel out of control the more that we can do to give folks um that sort of sense of relief by you're not going to be let go or we're going to have to cut salaries but we're going to do our best to get the back or you know whatever it might be has has i think really been appreciated and in, in our staff you know and we also take feedback seriously and we also you know we regularly survey staff to see what we're doing well and, and what we're doing not so well and what can be proved one of the reasons this work from home switch for us wasn't super painful was because long before COVID hit, we embraced the idea of flexible schedules and we had we ended up having Friday be a work from home day. So that was a direct result, not that I was like, we should work from home on Friday. You know, it was everybody, that's what everybody wanted. So we said, okay, let's do that. And as a result of that, you know, for us transitioning to work from home as a result of COVID was was very easy. So, you know, I think the more people feel that they have a say in their work life and again like I said you know 20 years ago your work personal work life slash personal life were very separate and today they're much more much more one so the more people feel they have a say in how things are run the more they're going to feel engaged and helping things run smoothly and and continue to to um, build and grow the company
0: as you briefly mentioned there this sort of time of these current world events have hit pretty hard and you have led a team of people and your own company through the financial crisis of 2008, and now, of course, COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit about your building for the long term? I, I read online that you you really want to keep a knit of people together so when business does come back, you're stronger for it. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's that's essential, you know, and, and it's not something that I've thought about. Again, Like like I said, this is the first time that I've ever had to you know, lay people off. And it it was a very hard decision for me, but there was just no, there was just no other way around it. But like when you, I think you're referring to something back maybe in 2008. So when the recession recession hit back, back then, you know, we were only, I think, four years old. We started in 2004. So, you know, we were just starting to really grow and expand. And I don't know how many people we were then, probably 10 or 11 people then. And it would have been very easy at that point to have, okay, we don't know what's going on with the world. So let's get rid of people. We, you know, obviously we lost some clients. It was, we, when you lost clients, then it was, it was less dramatic than it it was with COVID. I mean, that was just, and it was, I can't even call it losing clients. It's, you know, restaurants that are no longer in business or no longer allowed to operate. So it was just a very different situation. But back in 2008, for me, you know, it's always been about the long-term approach. You know, it, like I said, it didn't, it came more slowly. It didn't dissipate my, decimate my client practice areas, but most people probably would have laid off staff just because they could, you know, but I chose to sort of, to use my savings that fortunately had at that point to keep the team together because with that, that long-term view, it's going to eventually turn around, right? We didn't know how long it would be, but it was going to turn around and it was it would cost me more from a business perspective thinking about it in that way, it would cost me more money and time to rebuild it, as well as I had put together a killer team of great people who didn't deserve to be laid off. You know, they didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't their fault, you know, the financial crisis happened. And so, you know, it was sort of both that sense of obligation, if you will, to people who had, you know, given a lot to me and helping me build the company, as well as, just really, in my opinion, a smart business approach, because if I fired my entire team and then I started getting clients and then I had to go and hire staff and train staff, it would be impossible, right? To do that, in my opinion, to do that effectively and it would cost me much more money. So, you know, I kept the team on, you know, I it's sort of a part of my company's DNA to offer pro bono services. So we, we did a lot of nonprofit work during that time, which again, thinking about it from the perspective of, long-term relationship relationship development, you know, so we did those sorts of things to, you know, help the team stay busy and, you know, get us to the other side of it. So, you know, like I said, COVID is extremely different. I think it's different from anything that anybody has seen in, in any lifetime, anybody who's alive today, you know, so, and like I said, it's, you know, very truthfully affected us much more significantly simply because, know of our focus on the industries that have been hardest hit you know not only hospitality and lifestyle but even our cpg practice you know those are our three main practice areas CPG has been hit because you know costs that they had planned to spend you know maybe on the budget in 2021 or 2022 are now you know moving up or products that are sold in restaurant like some of our booze and and beer and spirit clients those you know, so they might be killing it you know off premise, but you know they're they're obviously not selling in you know restaurants or bars right now, so it's it's just I think a really a different way to think about it, and I've always sort of approached everything staffing client relationship development, media relationship development from that more of a long term view
0: so you briefly mentioned there the pro bono work, and that's one of the key areas of your business today. How does it impact the work that you do? and why is it again, such an important part of your company culture?
1: You know, I think my my father really instilled in me the notion of giving back to my community. When I was a kid, we always, you know, were doing you know food drives and soup kitchens. and we just sort of always it was just part of my childhood, part of my my life growing up. And so, I think actually, one of the reasons I was so drawn to the field of PR when I first worked on the Starbucks business was because at the time, giving back to the community was a huge part of that company's business strategy and so everything we did if I was opening a store in a new market, if I was opening a new state, if I was you know partnering with some organization, everything was very very nonprofit driven at the time and it had never occurred to me i didn't didn't realize right that you could find a job where you could give back while you're working in a field that has not necessarily anything to do with giving back, right? I mean, you could always go work for a nonprofit or something like that, and then you'd be giving back while you're you know, doing that work. But to be in sort of this for-profit model, but being able to, to really contribute to the greater good was a really cool thing. And so again, I think that's something else that really that really resonated with me when I first got into the space. And when you're, you know, when you're doing PR, when you're when you're working with a company's brand and and establishing the brand, you have just a lot of power. It's not the right word because it's not power, but you know, going back to t- taking the initiative, right? You know, it was it was my it was my opportunity and my my choice what we did. So for example, after I think it was after nine eleven. The company had this program I forget what it was called but it was something where you, you could donate if you, were, if you were a Starbucks partner, they call their employees, you, and you went and you wanted to work in a soup kitchen or you know, whatever, nonprofit activity, you could fill out a paperwork, and the company would pay would make a donation on your behalf to that nonprofit for you. And so after 9 11, they wanted to open that up to their customers as well, and they get this broader program. And so every region at the time, the marketing um, world for Starbucks was divided by regions. I had New England. Every region in the entire country went and said, oh, there's a breast cancer walk. There's an AIDS walk. We're going to participate in that. And we'll market it to our, our customers and our employees to do that. I was the only market, the only region in the entire country that went and created an event from scratch. And we did these cleanup events, partnered with the zoo, which was a relationship that Developed for me, and the zoo has been one of our clients since I don't even know 2006. And so, you know, it was certainly a lot of extra work and a lot of extra logistics and a lot of extra everything, as opposed to just going and doing what most markets did. But, you know, I had the ability to create something and to really make an impact, you know, for my client, Starbucks, as well as the community. And I took it. So, I think that's something. You know, we certainly do pro bono, and incorporate pro bono into our clients when, whenever um, possible. And then it also obviously continues to be something that that we do as an agency. We have certain pro bono clients, you know, we're asked every, seems like week or month to take on more, you know, we, the whole agency could be that. But, you know, we have to be thoughtful about it. We have to be careful about it because, you know, we have to make money as well or we won't stay in business. But we've done some tremendous work for nonprofits, you know, I had, we have one that's on our roster and they came to us the first year and said, will you design our invitation our sort of invitation package for our big annual gala? So the invitation, the save the date, the program book, all of those things. And so they came back to us for year two and said, would you do that again? And I said, listen, you know, I've now been working with you for over a year. And if somebody put a gun to my head and said, what does this organization do, I would be dead because I can't clearly and effectively communicate what it is. Your website is a mess. It was had been built, you know, it was a 20 20, 25 year old nonprofit. So you know they it was like building a house with putting an attic here and then a mother-in-law suite here and a bathroom here. And there was just no sort of, sort of continuity to the site and the communication was all over the place. And so I said, listen, I would be happy to do your annual gala invitation package again if you let me take on the bigger question about your entire brand and how you communicated and you know they said okay <laughs> twist our arm and you know so we did that and completely you know took a, an, an organization we, we actually renamed it and came up with you know their tagline and rebuilt a website and just sort of all of their communications pieces their annual reports etc etc to just keep you know, if I'm going to be involved in something, I want it to really have an impact. And so that's just an example, I think, of, of one exa- of, of, of one situation where we did that.
0: And then 15 years ago, you set up a monthly communication called Marlow Monthly. What's included in the communication? Why do you think you've managed to make it and make sure it lives for 15 years? Because that's a long time in, in any business.
1: It has literally gone out every single month for 15 years. We have never missed a month. You know, it's funny. I started it for one really simple reason. Back when I started the company, I had I think like five clients. Starbucks, the Nantucket Wine Festival. We had a restaurant in Nantucket that was a new client. And I had a group of I don't remember what it was at the time, but now they're six restaurants that is still a client. So we have a client actually that's older than the agency. They came with me when I started the company. And so my like I said, my my love my, my first passion is hospitality in the restaurant space. And so, you know, I had, you know, we, we'd be doing all this great stuff for our our restaurant clients. And, you know, if an event was happening, you know, on Saturday, you know, we, as the PR people would be sending the information out, you know, a month out, five weeks out, because we wanted the media to cover it, you know, two weeks before. So you could read about it and say, Oh honey, this looks great. Let's buy a ticket and go right? But the media, especially at the time, the event was on Saturday, they're like, let's cover it on Friday. So it gave people no time to plan. And so I, re- I remember still getting a great article on the client it was like, uh, yeah, that's awesome. My dining room is still empty. So, you know, whatever. And that really resonated to me, right? So, you know, I thought I have all of this really fun news way in advance. And even at that time, I had a pretty strong database. So my, my, goal in coming up with Marlowe Monthly was thinking about how could I share with people information far enough out so they could plan on, attend some, plan on attending and supporting my clients. And that's how I came up with it. So, you know, email marketing was used at the time, but not really, you know, super well. It wasn't, it was, you know, not particularly pretty. The copy wasn't, you know, super compelling. So I knew, you know, that in order for mine to be read, it had to be really well written. Clever, you know, there's certainly a voice. It has its own voice and it has to provide value. So, you know, I can't tell you how many people have told me since that time that it's the only newsletter they look forward to actually reading. You know, I I wrote it for myself for a long time. And but for now, you know, many, many years now, my team writes it and I still edit it. I still spend a lot of time on that every month, which probably accounts for some of the consistency. But, it, you know, it really, it's a perfect example of taking a, a marketing tool that see people like oh you know if you're if you're you think digital marketing is sort of you know all the all the the realm right all the the only thing you should be doing you know well i don't do direct mail anymore i don't do billboards i wouldn't do a print ad i wouldn't do an email newsletter you know the thing with marketing today is that we have so many more tools in the toolkit and it's really knowing how to use which one when based on what you're trying to achieve based on budget. But then knowing that whichever one you choose to use, it has to be done well, right? I mean, you can do digital marketing and have, you know, crap, you know, messaging and and not anything, you know, looking particularly great that people are going to click on, and it's not going to be as effective as if you had it done really well. So, you know, I think Marla Monthly sort of is a perfect example of that because it's great to have the legs that it has 15 years later. If you saw some of the people (laughs) that read this newsletter all over the country. Actually, a funny story. I was in San Francisco four years ago, I think, five years ago, having lunch with the former publisher of Boston Magazine, who had moved to California. He was the publisher of San Francisco Magazine at the time. And we we're having lunch at some restaurants, some generic steakhouse I didn't know. And this guy comes over, the general manager, managing partner, and the publisher says, oh, Pete, I want you to meet my friend Marlo. From he was visiting from Boston. And Pete said, Marlo? of marlo monthly <laughs> i was like what you know a friend of mine had referred he'd asked him you know, a few years prior do you have any you know anything good in the space i should be reading and he signed up for it i'm getting my newsletter you know every month for years. years. so it's just do things well and they resonate
0: clearly you've built a strong business you've got a great personal brand you've Clearly worked super hard to accomplish this throughout your career. What advice would you give to others starting out the career and how do they become great at what they do?
1: Keep your head down, do your job and say yes to every opportunity that comes your way. You know, your 20s are when your number one priority should be work because it sets you up to on your destiny rather than relying on others to map out your career path. You know, it's it's a short answer, it's a sweet answer, and I a hundred percent believe in the answer.
0: Okay. So I have some quick fire questions for you. When working with you, what are two behavioral qualities that others just have to show on a daily basis?
1: Well, it's probably not going to be a surprise based on our conversation so far. You know, I have pride in your work. I give a damn always, you know, personally, I work at a really high fast paced level, you know, not by choice. It's just the only way I know how to operate, you know, and I expect the same passion and drive from people around me, you know? So I would say that's one. And I, I think number two, be honest, you know, to me, integrity and transparency are critical. I would rather someone tell me that they don't know the answer to something than make something up. You know, that said, I'm also a huge proponent of faking it to make it, which is what I did for a long time, um, especially when I was first working on Starbucks, and I had no idea what it was doing. So I think knowing how to balance the two is a real talent, right? Being honest when you're not sure and it's going to have some serious impact on yourself, on the client, on the agency, whatever, but also trying to figure it out, you know, and like, yeah, I got it. And figuring out how to, how to figure it out, whether it's asking somebody else or um, Googling it, you know, going on YouTube, like you had, you know, said earlier, you know, to figure out how to, you know, edit something up. Right. So, I think it's really just a balance of those two.
0: And then what is one unacceptable behavior at work that you just do not tolerate?
1: I don't tolerate, you know, not having respect for the team. You know, I think one of the reasons, not I think, I know, you know, one of the reasons I started the company and they used to always say this, and fortunately I haven't had to say it for a while because it just is, it's kind of a non-issue. I have no patience for corporate BS politics, you know, nastiness, you know, if you don't, if you don't like something that somebody's doing, or you don't like something somebody's wearing, or, who cares, you know, it's, I just, I've never had, you know, respect for, for, for that kind of behavior, you know, and I know that especially, you know, in the space that we're in, none of us can do our best work flying solo, you know, it's imperative that um, we all work really closely and, and put a lot of effort in making our work environment supportive and reliable. You know, everything from just asking somebody how their weekend was, you know, to following through and and doing what you say you're going to do, to stepping in when someone says they need help, and and even more so stepping in when someone doesn't outright say they need help, but you see that they do, you know. So not sort of respecting that ethos of being a team player is really a deal breaker for me because I'll tell you one thing. There is no way I would be where I am today had I not had a team to support and rely on and make me look really good. And I, I feel so grateful to have been had the opportunity to work with the people that I've worked with and that we have as part of the company today. You know, and I, I, every now and again, if I'm getting down on myself, I always try to remember, you know, to give myself a pat on the back because, you know, there was something that I did that put that group together. And I'm really proud of that.
0: You should be, I think. I think especially like reading through this, the consistency of those the newsletters the website i was i was really blown away when doing that research and i had not heard of the newsletter before but i i've signed up and we'll also we'll include the link in the show notes for anybody that does want to sign up too so um look yeah. forward to receiving that for another another 15 years at least <laughs> uh for
1: the mouth of god's ears yes <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for your insights, Marlo. I I really do appreciate it. We'll link um, your website, Marlo Marketing, and and have a direct link to your LinkedIn profile too for people that want to learn more and, and research themselves. And as I said, alongside that newsletter. So thank you so much.
1: Perfect. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed those 45 minutes or so that we were together. It was fascinating to meet with Marlo and learn from her experiences. A few things really hit home for me during our chat. Marlowe is clearly so passionate about having pride in your work. She referenced it quite a few times while we spoke. It's really ingrained in her and her company culture. Marlo has been able to be successful by living by that alongside her approach to her customers too. The notion of, I don't want the easy approach. I want one that is right for my customers and her clients, whereby that they can have real pride in the work that they do. It's not about finding the shortest route to the end for Marlowe and her team. It's about finding the most rewarding route. I'd also encourage any of you to sign up for the newsletter. I've read through some of the past editions and they're hugely valuable, hence why I suppose she's been able to keep it alive for 15 years. Thank you once again for downloading and listening to this week's conversation with Marlo. Next week, we've got a really unique episode going live. So keep a lookout for that. It will go live on Monday. You've been listening to episode 16 of the One-to-One Career Conversation podcast. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, and probably anywhere else that you enjoy podcasts hit subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please also do take time to rate and review the show, especially on iTunes, it really does help us out. And you can also follow us over on Instagram and Twitter at the one-to-one pod. Thanks for listening.